Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to read just the first eight verses. We've been looking at the whole subject of the presence of God, and uh, these are well-known verses about somebody who came face-to-face with the presence of God, and there are some, I think, some helpful lessons for us in it. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two wings they covered their feet, and with two wings they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongues from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Here am I. Send me. Lord, will you... Make your word living to us. We ask you, Holy Spirit, that you'll come to us this morning. Lord, there are things which we will never, ever grasp unless you reveal them. There are things which will always be on the surface and, and not really change us until you take them and make them real to us. So we ask you to do that this morning. Will you charge, Lord, the very atmosphere of this place with your presence and make what we read real, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We've been uh, looking at God's presence, the wonder of it, the privilege of it, some aspects of what you might call the danger of it, the threat of it. And we saw in Adam's case, if you like, paradise lost. And then how God, in various ways, by just taking, as he always does, these initiatives of grace and picking up individuals who, who respond in faith and the presence of God is to varying measures restored. And uh, we were looking last time about the pillar of fire and that God's intention to be present among his people and make a significant difference every day. You may not have seen the fire by night and the pillar by day, but uh, our expectation is that we will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I, I, I also want to thank God for his renewing presence this week for me. There have been times when I have felt him come to me, and that is extraordinarily wonderful. You know, there are times when we, when we feel like, and we, we, we seek the Lord. There are also times, and I hope you've known them, when the Lord has come to you. Do, have you, do you know what I mean? And, and you, uh, the, on a couple of occasions this week, I've been almost surprised and moved that he should. He's that kind of God. Something about that this morning, in this incident with Isaiah. God revealing himself 
disclosing himself. You see, what the lesson I want us to take from this this morning is this, that we must be clear whose presence we're in. I, I, I fancy that there are many, many times when we are in the presence of God, and it's almost as if we're blinkered, and we only see the bits that we are conditioned to see or of a mind to see, or we're, we're a bit short-sighted, yeah? And, and so that, oh gosh, if I shut this eye, you're all blurred. And, you know, that our, our perspective in the presence of God is very important. It will condition my response. If I'm in, quote, the presence of God, and uh, my, my, my view of God, my understanding of God is deficient, I will not be moved. It'll almost be proportionate. Now, we're told at the beginning of Isaiah 6 that it was in the year that King Uzziah died. Quite an important, actually, to see Scripture in its context and, and, and equally true here. King Uzziah, or as he's known in the book of Kings, King Azariah. And you think, well, why did he have two names? Well, probably because somebody couldn't spell. Um, I looked it up in a, co in a commentary, and apparently the Assyrians called him King Azrijai Jude. So Azrizai is kind of halfway between Azariah and Uzziah. Um, and that, that, that was what he was known as. 1 Kings 15, if you, or 2 Kings 15 is probably better, um, talks about him and his reign. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years. His mother's name was Jechaliah. She was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. The high places were not removed, and the people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. The Lord afflicted the king with leprosy until the day he died, and he lived in a separate house. So, at the, excuse me, at the end of this 52-year reign, we now have Isaiah on his last legs. He died in about in well, he died in, in the year 742 BC after a long, peaceful, prosperous reign. It was a period in Judah when the enemies were not threatening and people could get on with building wealth rather than defending the borders. At the end of it, he died in 742. In 745, three years earlier, Tiglath-Pileser III, or affectionately known as Pull, I don't quite know where his nickname came from, but uh, he, he was what we'd, we'd probably call um, a kind of expansionist imperialist. He, he, he was a a man of vigorous intentions and uh, took great steps particularly to afflict and invade the northern kingdom. And so the 50 years of peace and prosperity are, are past and we're entering a period of troubled waters. I don't know if you have times like that in your life where you know, things have, have gone quite well. The problem is that in Israel and, and Judah at the time, because things have gone quite well, people have gotten very slack where God was concerned. And uh, now that the, 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 the seasons, if you like, were changing, and uh, that there was now a time of insecurity and uncertainty, time of threat, a, a, a time when prospects were poor and declining. 
that the, the, the good old days were not being repeated quite as we would have hoped in a, a godless age. And that at the end of this godless age, there's, there's the king dying. He's, he's had leprosy for years. And slowly, the lights are going out. Can, can you picture it? And uh, the peace and the strength that Judah has known, that things are just beginning to dim. Prospects are not looking anything like as good as they were. And Tiglath-Pileser III, this barbaric empire builder, is kind of standing, queuing up on the border. That, that, that's the context. That, that's the, the, the background to what we read in Isaiah chapter 6. I don't, I don't know what Isaiah was thinking about. If all of that was going, sometimes you, you may have been watching the news on the news, at, news at 10 and you know, feeling quite discouraged. But uh, when Liz and I were, well, when we were, last, we were last in Israel, we actually went up to the north of Israel to uh, one of Solomon's old fortress towns in Hazor. And uh, there, the, the northern gate is still intact. They've dug away because they're about 20 odd on the tell. They're about 20 odd layers of civilization. And they've got down to Solomon's level. And uh, the gatehouse that faced north, facing up to Assyria, the, the stones that they filled it in with because they were expecting Tiglath Pileser III to come, the stone, the, gate, the, the gateway is still blocked off. The, the blocks of stone, that why they thought, you know, that why they thought he wouldn't kind of, he saw the northern gate filled in, he wouldn't walk around to the back door and come in the south gate, I don't know. But the, 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 the gatehouse is still blocked off to this day because of this great fear and threat of uh, the Assyrians, the barbaric Syrians coming down and destroying Israel. And uh, so that, that's the context. And in the year that King Isaiah died, in the year when all looked bleak and discouraging, I saw the Lord. <laughs> See, can you feel the contrast? I, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. It's almost the contrast. There's this old, decrepit, leprous king, you know, about to snuff it, on his way out. The mortal king and, and all his grandeur going with him. And in contrast with that is this immortal king. This God reigning on high. Now, that's the perspective of God's presence that we have in Isaiah chapter 6. And what, what a changed perspective. Now, we, we looking a year ago, or two ago, we were in, in looking through Revelation. Those of you that are recently with us, you miss Revelation every Sunday morning for months on end. And, uh, but it began in the same way. You had John on the Isle of Patmos, you know, digging out his salt, and then suddenly heaven is open. And so it is with Isaiah here. His perspective is changed. He sees the Lord. He sees Adonai, the sovereign one, the one with dominion. And he sees this throne, this high throne. And the, the, his train filled the temple. Now, that's not London Midland region or whatever region that you are used to. We, we, as, a, as children, we kind of get the wrong idea, don't we? That his sweeping robes, that his, 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 the garments of his majesty, are swirling round this throne. And the seraphim, the, the seraphs, the, these angelic beings, flying round with three wings. I can only think of a kind of super wasp, can't you, with that? But, but uh, it's all symbolic. And they're covering their eyes because they're not worthy, because they also are created beings. They dare not gaze on the, on the glory of God without some veil. 
And they cover their feet. They say that's because they, that they, the feet is symbolic of activity and business and they want their feet covered so it's only God's business they're occupied with. And with the other wings, they manage to keep airborne. The seraph, and, and this picture, everything is majestic about it. Everything is majestic. That's the whole impression that comes of this man who suddenly God's presence is unveiled to him. I'm told, well, it's in his book, Jack Hayford was at Blenheim Palace and uh, saw all that splendid. That's the right word. So, I'm sorry to bring, down, you know, to bring the prospects down to very earthy and, and, and minimal. But uh, it, 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 he was there and he was reminded of, uh, of there was this form of majesty before his eyes and he thought of that great majesty and he wrote the hymn or the song, Majesty. He, sat, he was stood at Blenheim Palace, look it, all the way from Los Angeles, majesty, worship his majesty to Jesus with glory, honor, and power. And it's this sense of, of kingdom, it's the sense of his presence, of his reign, and of his throne, which comes over Isaiah. And uh, as the seraphim are flying around, or whatever they were doing, ministering in the Lord's presence, there's this overpowering sense of God's holiness. Says it three times, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. In Hebrew, a repetition is, of that order is to describe something in its superlative, in its totality. And the seraphs are singing, saying that holy, there's, there's something extraordinarily complete about God's holiness. God, and the, the word means his brightness and his separateness. The holiness of God, when it's shown outward, is, is revealed as glory. When it's inward, it's just the essence of his character. And, and the Sarah, seeing God in all of this majestic splendor, holy, holy, holy. And this man saw it. Or did he see it? Huh? Because you, John, Jesus, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but God, the, the, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. This is this great mystery. Well, we, we, we know well enough in Exodus 33 when we were looking there. And Moses said, Lord, show me your glory. And the Lord had to say to him, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. Because God is spirit. Those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. There's a, a verse in Isaiah 31. It says, but the Egyptians are men and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. There's this great contrast. God is spirit. And even if we could see him, we'd kind of burn. You know? keep, your, keep the people and the livestock off the mountain. If they get too close to God, they'll, they, they will be destroyed by his presence. And yet Isaiah here says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the comment that I found most helpful was this. This is what a man said. Yet graciously, God condescends to clothe now this side of his nature and that side of his nature with visibility for our instruction. And it's not that Isaiah saw the Lord in his totality. He, he, we cannot. We're not capable of that form of view. But isn't it lovely 
how did he put it? That the Lord clothes now this side of his nature and now that side of his nature with visibility. Now, this is the essence of it, really, that God broke through and showed this man something about himself. That there was this, this element of revelation that came to him. Prior to this, he really hadn't seen God in this, in, to this degree at all. But then God came and opened his eyes and he saw aspects of God. Now, he didn't read a theology textbook. He didn't just kind of learn the lines and say, I know what God is and repeat it like a creed. There was something of God that was revealed to him by the Spirit of God, an aspect of God's majesty and glory. God broke through. And Paul writing to the Corinthians says, you know, that these, the things of God are, not, are unknown to the natural man. We, we, they have to be spiritually discerned. Now here we are on a Sunday morning, sitting through another sermon, and uh, David's up here trying to say, look, we need to have a better understanding of God. Yes, we do. But actually it's much more than that. I, like you, need the Lord to open my eyes freshly to see another aspect of God's character that I've never seen before. Because there's seeing and seeing, isn't there? Yeah? That there are things which we may have been taught from Sunday school, and we know that this is true of God. And then there are seasons when God will come to us and show us how this is true of him, and we're never the same again. It's actually the revelation of God to my heart that changes me. It, it isn't how perfect my theology is, important as theology is. I'm the last person to undermine that. It's not, it, but it, actually, it isn't whether I can dot all my I's and cross all my T's in theology. It's the degree to which that has been made real to me. It's the, un, it's the unveiling of his presence to me. So that when I come into worship, when you come into worship, our response in the presence of God will be, in proportion to the extent of the reality of who God is, has been revealed to me. Do you understand that? And therefore, the, the, the thing most important for us this morning is that we should be in his presence and God should reveal first this side and then reveal that side of his character for our instruction. Sometimes the, 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 the pictures that are described are, are very graphic. Isaiah, having started here, there are, there are then several times, and if you've read Isaiah, you'll know that he describes God in the most lofty terms. Isaiah 40, verse 18. Let me read some of it to you. To whom then will, he's been talking about idols, to whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood and he will, that, that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And its peoples are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to living. And so, and so it goes on. Isaiah 57, 15, For this is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, his name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. The, the, the psalmist caught it too. Psalm 93, not too long a psalm. 
So I'll turn to it and read it. Catching something of this glory and splendor that is God, the Lord reigns. He is clothed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and is armed with strength. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. The seas have lifted up, O Lord. The seas have lifted up their voices. The seas have lifted up their, their pounding waves, mightier than the thunder of the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your statutes stand firm. Holiness adorns your house for endless days, O Lord. You see it? That here people have been given this perspective, this insight on who God is and what he is like uh, in, in tremendous measure. You remember Moses? We looked at it recently, didn't we? When he, he wanted, following on from when he said, show me your glory, Lord. And he sticks him in a cleft of the rock and passes by. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And so he goes on. This is the Lord. Now, it's one thing for me to kind of memorize all. It would be a good thing to memorize all of that. A mighty good thing. We don't do enough of it. It would be an excellent thing to meditate and study on. But, oh, and... Um, and in, in a sense, our Bible reading is absolutely indispensable at this point. But when I read the Scripture every morning, I do need to say, what does this teach me about you, Lord? Unveil more aspects of you, Lord. Because unless he does, spiritually, I'm in poverty. That's the point of Isaiah. And yet when he... When, when he takes the veil away, when there's a new perspective in my life, it, it puts everything else in perspective, doesn't it? But have you found that? The times when God is real to you again, the things that bothered you previously don't bother you anymore. That this sense of actually getting my, the, my, the scale of myself in proportion is terribly important. You can't do it very often nowadays, but because of the amount of light pollution, you know, we see the stars about three times a year, don't we? But go, go out away from the cities. Have you ever done it? And stood on a dark night with, with the sky full of stars. It, it really does help to cut me down to size, does it not? Have you ever done that? You know, what is man that you are mindful of me? It's one of, the reasons, one of the reasons I love to stand on the top of a mountain. It's particularly where there's lots of mountain. And, and get a broad vista. It gives a very, very healthy perspective to life. It really does. A, a sense that actually I'm not quite as central to all that God has made as I thought I was. See, it puts my pride and my ego and my passions back into perspective. It puts my agenda into focus. There's something very serious and sobering to see the Lord high. It's very good for me. Yeah, yeah? it's very good for me. All that happened in Isaiah's ministry from this time onwards came from this encounter, this unveiling, this revelation of God to this man. He was a prophet from this moment onwards. And 
the, 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 the central theme in all of Isaiah's prophecy was that the, the Lord, they say he was the great monotheistic prophet. He, he was the one who saw God, God, the great king. And therefore it's the implications of that on his people. It clarifies my plans. It clarifies my, my career, my desires. So it's not, to me, it's not strange that we get to the end of, of, of this revelation and God is saying, well, who shall we send? But why did Isaiah say, send me, I'll go? Oh, because of the revelation. The more I know of God, the more the Spirit of God makes him real to me, the more my plans, my, you know, my career profile will get into perspective. The things that will matter in his presence are the things that matter. Do you agree? So that's the first thing, being awed by his holiness. But there is, as we realized when we read 2 Kings 15, another aspect to this whole revelation of God. See, Isaiah, or Azariah, whatever you want to call him, was unclean as he approached death. We, we lose it, really, that there was a a horrible pollution in Isaiah, so he had to live in his own house away from the people. Leprosy had, had awful, awful social connotations and stigma. And it's a, it was almost, as Isaiah writes, a symbol of the nation's plight, that uh, there, there was the nation, the king dying of leprosy, their, their age of prosperity fading, and Tiglath-Pileser, pull standing on the borders, judgment approaching, a day of reckoning for a nation that turned its back on God, that there was the judgment standing on the threshold and all was going to be swept away and changed by it. We're told here that the, uh, that the threshold shook. I have to say, some people have got really quite concerned that people should shake in the presence of God. I know a lot of it's been put on, but I, I can't believe that anybody in any way grounded in the Scripture, there should be a tall surprise that things shake in the presence of God. Um, trembling, um, it really ought to be the order of the day. I, Exodus 19, Mount, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a, a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. In the presence of God. There's a cracking section in Habakkuk. I'll read some of it. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. Selah, his glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand. Where his power was hidden, plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. <laughs> okay, get your mind around that. A bit like Iceland, I suppose. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. The mountains saw you and writhed. picture of judgment. You see, the other thing about the presence of God, as it was with Uzziah, and then immediately with Isaiah, is that when I'm in the presence of God, I'm instantly exposed. Aren't I? 
ever been in the presence of God in the time of real expressive worship when you've had a guilty conscience? Brothers, let's have some confession time here. Have you ever been a right miserable peasant to your wife? You know, for some inexplicable reason. And you know that your heart was miserable and hard. And uh, you lost your temper. You were downright rude and uncharitable. And you walk into the presence of God and you start to do this and you realize it's not there. Ever? Anybody else? Oh, good. Two honest men. The presence of God makes me feel unfit. Whatever uncleanness is there will be evident once I draw near to his presence. The, the things that I've tolerated for years, when I draw into his presence, suddenly become intolerable. It, it, it's just the effect of light, isn't it? As long as I can live in the shadows, there are things which might be a bit murky which I can put up with. It's like the dust. You know, the, you, you, your husband never notices it, but women have this ability to see it everywhere, right? Particularly when the light goes on. Holiness is fine in theory, but it, it just draws this awful contrast with where I am. Have you, have you had any bad attitudes recently? And then gone into the presence of God. He, he isn't impressed at all, is he? Isn't it awful? Huh? You know, have, have you had any you know, resentments? Or you know, have you been stubborn in your heart? Or, or, or proud? Or indignant? Or you know, your dignity has been threatened? And you, you, you're really bothered? And you think that God will be bothered as well? And you come into his presence and he's not impressed one scrap. And it, it's almost as if he takes a mirror and turns it all right, right. And the presence of God exposes me. Always. Shows me my need. And that's why, as Christians, the gospel elements, we can, we, we, we can never, ever move very far from them. That's why atonement is so continually necessary. That's why sorry, Lord, and humbling myself has got to be a continual part of my Christian life. If I ever get to the point where I'm beginning to feel, well, I'm okay now, I'm in great danger. I have found that my Christian life is, is a place where God has to keep me at a place where I'm not beginning to think more highly than I ought to. Doesn't, am I the only one, or does the, the presence of God have that effect on you as well? Which is why we sing so many songs about the blood and about the death of Jesus. The presence of God will make me aware of how needy I am. And here we have Isaiah, overwhelmed by it really. And uh, woe is me, he said. I am undone. Or was the, woe to me, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king. And we're told that a seraph comes with a live coal. So what's this for? Wouldn't it burn his lips? It's all symbolical. The coal came from the altar of sacrifice. The altar was the place where atonement was made. The, the altar was the, was the place of reconciliation, where, where, where an angry, just God would be propitiated, would be appeased. And a symbol of all that the altar had done was brought and touched this man. 
and he said, your sin is atoned for. It says that the, the seraph flew, it was heaven's initiative, once again. And it, made, and it atoned, it covered. It, it, it sufficiently paid the debt. Put right, the price for putting right, the price of justice. We touch the cross like that, don't we? We don't want a relic of it. We don't want a, a piece of it to touch us. But faith touches the cross just like that. The cross was the place where we were reconciled, where sin was dealt with, where I was made clean again. Yes? And that, so that every time we come into the presence of God and know the holiness of God, there needs to be this instinct to draw again to the place where God atoned for us and forgave us and made us acceptable and made me clear. Isn't it lovely? Isn't it a wonderful thing to know that we are accepted in the beloved and God has made me clean? That, that the holiness of God that could otherwise be so horribly threatening isn't threatening anymore. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that why it's so important to constantly sing of Jesus' death and resurrection that made all of this possible for me? Otherwise, you see, but for the wrath of God, but for this day of account that is coming, you know, salvation might be optional, but it's not optional anymore. The terror of the unrepentant, the, the sense of Isaiah going relentlessly unclean to death and the whole judgment then being piled on is a terrible picture. And the thing that makes it inapplicable to us is what Jesus has done, making us clean, keeping us clean. So I hope this morning as we've looked at Isaiah's revelation that there's something in my in your heart as as there is in mine saying lord i really want to know you more theology will help but i need my theology to drop from here to here need you holy spirit to come progressively to my life that you would reveal aspects of my god that will become so real to me Helen passed me a, um, a quote this week, which I read to some on Tuesday, but I'll read to you here as well. It says this. Praise is like a plow, set to go deep into the soil of the believer's heart. Praise is a, an acknowledgement, an awareness, a confession of who God is and what he's like. Praise is like a plow set to go deep into the soil of the believer's heart. It lets the glory of God into the details of daily living. You see, the more I'm aware, the more of God's glory, and the more like Isaiah, that I, I'm not looking at a dead king, but an immortal king. And, and the more I, that praise, therefore, rises within my heart, it, it will set the glory of God in the details of my daily living. I say we need that. I say that in this coming week, and Mark can remind us next week so that our, our response in worship can be enriched by it, but in this coming week, let, let God just open our hearts and our eyes anew this morning in his presence. Let there be something for each of us, that the Spirit of God just rolls back the veil that little bit, just for you and for me. And let there be a response of praise to that. 
and, and let, let there be an echo of praise and a, a, a chorus of praise that pervades my week as a consequence. It will bring the glory of God into the details of daily living. Can you see the connection? Revelation first, praise rising second, and the presence of God pervading my ordinary. Let's bow our heads. Pray together. In a moment, I want us to finish where we normally start with some songs of confident praise. Lord, will you open heaven to us this morning? Some of us, Lord, are in danger because of the difficulties that we've faced of losing sight of you, high and exalted. We want to see you again, Lord. In the the depth of our heart, Lord, we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you will reveal something of the Father's glory to my heart afresh. Ask you, Lord, that as we sing you praises, as we lift up your name, that you will let something of it catch us and inspire us for Jesus' sake. We want you, Lord, to, to so disclose yourself to us that this coming week will have a dimension and a dynamic of your presence which will be transforming. Do help us. Come, Holy Spirit. We want to see the Lord high and uplifted. Very conscious, Lord, of how important this can be for all of us. We live so much of our lives with our horizons too low and with you, Lord, so much out of focus. Lord, lift my horizon this morning. Let the glory of God be a prominent feature in my view to transform everything else. For Jesus' sake.